I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending September 25th. In this episode, the technology industry is on the verge of introducing a lot of new products that people will be interacting with, ranging from social distancing technologies, delivery drones, autonomous rescue vehicles, and so much more. Georgia Tech professor Ayana Howard has spent her career exploring the intersection of artificial intelligence and robotics with a particular interest in how people relate to technology. It turns out that people respond to technology in some very interesting ways. Also, there have been a lot of innovative new semiconductor memories introduced in the last few years. Despite all this innovation, the memory market has been one of the least dynamic segments in the semiconductor industry. Why? We talk with EE Times contributor Gary Hilson about that. Also, we'll have a bit about the upcoming virtual get-together called the Boards and Solutions Conference. We'll get a sneak preview of what that will be all about. We've been interacting with our smartphones and our smart speakers for years. In late August, Amazon received approval from the Federal Aviation Administration to deliver goods with drones. Amid the pandemic, hospitals have been experimenting with the dog-like robot made by Boston Robotics. EE Times has been closely following the development of autonomous vehicles. My fellow editor, Nitin Dahad, wrote about a robot bartender a few months back. Humans are interacting with more machines more often, and that trend is accelerating. In science fiction, there is as much complexity in the relationships between humans and robots as there is among humans with each other. And yet, even as our technology becomes increasingly interactive, our behavior with our machines is still developing, and how we interact with them is sometimes surprising. Ayana Howard remembers watching The Bionic Woman on TV and being fascinated. When she got her engineering degree, one of the first projects she became involved with was the creation of Evolver, said to be the first commercial genetic algorithm. Evolver is still being offered as a plug-in for Microsoft Excel, by the way. Later, working for NASA, she investigated neural networking and vision systems, and while there helped create snow moats. Autonomous Miniature Snowmobiles for Polar Exploration In 2013, she founded Zyrobotics, a company that provides electronic teaching tools for students with special needs. She remains the company's CTO. Recently, she's been teaching at Georgia Tech's School of Electrical and Computer Engineering, where she is currently chair for the School of Interactive Computing. Her area of research and I'm quoting her bio from Georgia Tech's website here, is centered around the concept of humanized intelligence, the process of embedding human cognitive capability into the control path of autonomous systems. That just sounded like a whole lot of what EE Times has been covering recently, all bundled into one package. So I was incredibly gratified when Howard accepted to speak with us for the weekly briefing. I started out asking her about her work on AI and robotics at Georgia Tech, and she suggested defining terms first. Here's Ayanna Howard. So what is robotics and what is AI? That's usually one of the questions I'm asked, um, and I use them interchangeably. And, and so really, I think about um, 
robotics as the physical embodiment and AI as the cognitive embodiment. Um, and so when I talk about an intelligent machine, um, I'll use robot if I think it has a physical and I'll use AI if it's a virtual, but it still has the same mind, same brain, same thinking process. Um, and what I do in my research and in my work is I design and develop methods that allow these systems, these intelligent systems to interact with people in, in very effective and efficient ways. Sure. So are we talking, when you say that, are we talking about the human machine interface in general, just the, the input and output, or are you talking about um, the ways uh, people might interact with a machine and the way the, uh, a machine might respond? I'm more interested in the ways that uh, the machine responds. I'm also interested in ways to allow my machines to learn from people okay. so that they can figure out how to respond in, in the best way in terms of either improving job function or enhancing quality of life or whatever function that I'm focused on. So it's really, it's not just about the interface, which is important, but it's really about the seamless collaborative interaction. Okay, so I've seen uh, from some of your papers, you've, you've uh, looked at this in um, a lot of, a range of application areas. Um, your papers have mentioned uh, the pediatrics environment, um, uh, emergency response, it appears, uh, others. What have you learned thus far about how people want to interact with machines and, and how you're able to get the machines to respond in the ways that people either expect or want or in perhaps what's appropriate? Yeah, so interesting enough, um, people are strange in that sometimes we... <laughs> yes. Uh, they, they are. In, in, in the ways they might interact or the hypotheses that we have about the ways they might interact. But given that, they are also predictable i.e. once you figure out what's the norm, then people can be modeled, honestly. Um, and model is a generalization. There's always um, kind of anomalies. So what I enjoy is really the best kind of research is when I have a hypothesis about how I think people will interact with my robots, how I think my robots will react, and it's wrong, right? Those are, that's the most fascinating research to me because it allows me to then really go deep and, and figure out, okay, why was this fundamental theory wrong? Um, and it's usually because of assumptions that I've made. Fascinating. So is this a, a, is it a lot of cause and effect or are you actually, uh, I mean, uh, do you actually have to dive into psychology uh, to make sure that uh, what you're building, you know, the, the, the devices you build or respond to. Yeah, we, we delve quite a bit into uh, more behavioral science, cognitive science, mm -hmm. uh, those even learning sciences. How do people learn um, because they do adapt in, in all of those? And it's different because I was classically trained as an engineer, as, as honestly a computer engineer and then electrical engineer, computer scientist. And so I've had to relearn uh, some of the fundamental skills uh, to get my robots to actually work. So give us a couple of examples. Do you have any val uh, handy about uh, you know, something where you had an expectation and uh, 
and it turned out that uh, you ended up learning something? Yeah, so the, the most, uh, I guess I would say the most famous one was the emergency evacuation um, mm-hmm. scenario. And so what we, the, the scenario was, we wanted to see what would happen when robots made mistakes? What would people do? And the theory based on some preliminary work that was done in virtual reality, virtual world, was that when robots made mistakes, that uh, people would not necessarily follow them, believe in them, and, and continue working with them. So that was some of the, the fundamental uh, theories, and it was based on some preliminary data. We then had a, a scenario where we introduced people with physical robots in a building. So they were physically present. We then created a high-risk scenario Basically, we, we filled the, the room with smoke. We set off the, alar- the alarms while they were in a room and they had to leave. And we had anticipated that if the robot made a mistake, the person would not follow the robot outside you know, to where the robot was guiding them. Uh-huh. That was not the case. Uh, it, it was even when the robot made a mistake, i.e. The robot would guide them to an area that was clearly not the exit, or the robot would uh, malfunction. So, say, turn in place and not go anywhere. Um, individuals mm-hmm. would still follow the guidance of the robot, which surprised us in, in more ways than one. That's interesting. So, the, at least in this uh, in this study, the impulse of the humans were was more trusting than I would have imagined them to be. Yes. And if you pick apart, like kind of, this is the interesting, like the why and why wasn't it same in the virtual world? Um, the, the theory is, is one, we created a high risk scenario. And so you are on, you're, you're on the reaction. You're not really thinking you're in this more reactive phase. And so you're, you're, you know, the alarms, you see smoke, you're just like, okay, what's, oh, robot pointing, let's go. Right. It's not you don't have time to think about it's like, wait, hold it. That robot's not doing right. You just don't have that the luxury right, of right. thinking. Um, so we really think that that is um, somewhat what's driving is we didn't give them time to think. And therefore, it was mm. more of a reaction. So that's interesting. Um, do people's interactions with machines change uh, depending on the. Uh, the type of situation. So if you learn something in an emergency situation, is it necessarily applicable in a, in a doctor's office or, or somebody interacting with their IBO? So we've, we've pushed this and we have been able to um, mimic the same scenario in multiple, in different types of situations. The requirement is that it has to be a high risk, time critical situation. So we've done this with self-driving cars, for example, where you know you you're either going to crash or you got to use the use the self-driving mode, right? And you see the, the exact same kind of like, oh, it's it's the robot, of course. Um, so that's really it. Doesn't matter the situation or the robot that's being used. It matters if it's a scenario where you are not given the luxury to think and process and, and kind of go through the logical sequence of of thinking. Yeah, that's interesting about the uh, the autonomous vehicles. Obviously, there's been a lot of interest in that, um, and uh, and the level of safety. Um, 
and whether you can actually go to a full autonomy anytime soon. And, and one of the things is, um, is, uh, the difficulty in the, when and under what circumstances and how quickly you can switch from human control to autonomous control and back again. Um, have, so uh, you're nodding, so you're at least aware of what's going on there. Do, do, do you have any perspective on how that works? Yeah, so the, the switching costs um, is it's, it's basically too high because what happens is um, when you are going from autonomous to, you know, human manually driven mode, um, if you do not have the same situational awareness of what's going on, the human is is not in a, in a is not in a situation to actually make a good decision. They don't have all the data. Um, and so we see this in, in, there's been a number of cases where we've seen this in, in airplanes and flights where, you know, autonomous mode is like suddenly deactivated and the human pilot has to figure out what's going on. He doesn't have all the information. Again, high risk, time critical. Interesting. So we're talking about uh, um, the, the, the ability of a machine uh, to respond uh, to a human in, in different uh, situations. Um, are there... Um, are there standard models for that sort of thing yet? Or do you have to like build a model every time you're trying to figure out what the interaction is? We have to build a model every time we um, do the interaction. Uh, as an example, pediatrics. In pediatrics, mm-hmm. what we do is we have these robots that engage with children with special needs to get them to exercise and, and do um, movements so that they can improve their, their motor function. Um, and that one, it's, it's, what does that mean? Like, how do you get a child to exercise when they may not want to necessarily do that in, in general? Um, that scenario and learning how to interact is going to be different than uh, we have robots that interact with kids to do math tutoring. You would think it'd be the same, but children are <laughs> reacting different ways. Oh, interesting. Okay. Wow. So looking ahead. Are there any applications that are closer to being implemented than others? Um, I'm going to say yes. And, and I will say that my answer would have been different uh, six months ago. Um, so some of the things about us being in this pandemic is accelerated applications that uh, kind of is, are surprising in some cases, but they're not surprising given the situation. Um, so as an example, we've, we've had cleaning robots. They, they're out there. Um, they haven't really been adopted necessarily in the U.S., but in other places they have. Uh, that has accelerated. So you now have you know cleaning robots that are being bought um, in many, many, many situations and scenarios. So that's increased. Um, you also have, you know, if you think about drones, we've been talking about drones for I don't know how long, but now we're seeing that there's been much more of a push to use drones in scenarios for delivery. Um, for scenarios, uh, even in surveillance type of applications in, in the park and things like that. And so um, I will say, I think that the applications, anything linked with human safety are accelerating. And, and so those are different things. I also think that there's going to be more in the case of education. Um, and these are more AI systems. I think that's going to be accelerated. And I honestly think there will be more in terms of um, 
environments where you typically had people. So manufacturing, um, stocking, uh, things that traditionally required um, a lot of you know human human contact. I think that they will be uh, retrofitted much more so with with robotics and humans working together. From a technological standpoint, from just the, the mechanics and electronics, um, and, and perhaps the AI is separate, or perhaps they're they're together. But what are the challenges um, that uh, that you see that um, the industry ought to be paying attention to or is trying to meet in order to get a uh, more robots that help out there? Yeah, so I think one of the things is the ability to transfer functionality. Uh, so you had asked, you know, do you have to learn a, a new model for every scenario? Um, and, the, and the fact is, is yeah, yes. Um, so which means that if I bring a robot home, it's not going to work exactly like I would out out of the box traditionally. Uh, that needs to be fixed because we, we, if it's if we have a robot in you know hospital A and we want to move it to say clinic B, we want we should be able to do that without having to relearn and, and try to figure out something new. Um, so that's one of the areas is this generalization. Uh, the other one and it's it's the manipulation and the physical movement within the space um, is still a challenge. Um, robots are still fairly slowish uh, because of that. And so that's much more of a, I would say, a hardware challenge uh, along with the software, but that's hardware uh, pushes in that space um, can, can be designed to fill that gap. Okay. Anything I haven't asked about that's, interesting, pertinent, or just plain groovy that you've been working on? Um, so I think, so one of the things that I tend to talk about a lot lately as well is the uh, the ethics of robotics. Uh, just because, mm. you know, as robots are accelerating in terms of their use, um, as we're deploying them even more so, um, they, you know, they're not 100% accurate and people are over-trusting them in certain cases. And so, you know, thinking about, how do you use them so that the benefits outweigh any of the harms, uh, whether the harms are, you know, workforce, um, addressing differences in workforce, whether the harms are um, taking jobs, whether the harms are even, you know, thinking about the cost that is required to even adopt robots. Um, Those are, that, that's three huge sociological issues, right? I, I mean, I can't imagine I can't imagine another you know half hour conversation on each one of those things. Um, but let me ask you about uh, one piece of that. Um, humans are training machines to respond to humans. So the response that you put in, you know, betrays perhaps the bias of of how you program it, right? Um, are there good mechanisms for making sure that you're not programming in biases? Um, so this is an open conversation. And, and in fact, it's uh, one that's in the news probably every other week uh, currently is, is the biases in the systems. Um, and, you know, some smart people, including I would add myself to that list, 
are, are trying to really think about how to do this. And it, and it deals with everything from, you know, the beginning of the pipeline, i.e. the data. It deals with designing of the algorithms and the robotic hardware. And then it also deals with the, with the outcomes and how do you have accountability and oversight. Um, there is no one solution and we need to think about it at all levels of, of the pipeline from, you know, design all the way to deployment. Ayanna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was great. By the way, the word robot was coined exactly 100 years ago. It was first used the way we use it today by Czechoslovakian author Karl Čapek in his play R.U.R. Čapek had come up with a new word, but the concept is old. Stories about inanimate figures coming to life go back to our most ancient myths. And after all these millennia, the fascination has yet to wane. Recently, HBO seems to have turned itself into the robot network with two marquee productions, Westworld and Raised by Wolves. And since we're on the subject, I'm enjoying the heck out of a series of books by Martha Wells featuring a character who calls himself Murderbot. The fifth book in the Murderbot series was published recently. There's a conference for everything, it seems, until you realize that, hey, no, there isn't. There are some important market segments that don't have a conference, but ought to. One of those is boards and solutions. Well, until now, that is. The first conference on boards and solutions will be held in a couple of weeks. It'll be run by AspenCore, the publishing company that owns EE Times, and our other sister publications, which include EDN, Electronic Products, Embedded, and Power Electronic News. Nitin Dahad writes for EE Times and is also the editor in charge of Embedded. He's got all the information on the conference, so we thought we'd give him a ring and find out what's what. I decided to start with the basics because... To be honest, I'm not sure about the answer myself. So, Nitin, boards and solutions, tell me what that means. Yes, uh, uh, yes, that's right, uh, Brian. So, um, actually, yeah, when you talk about boards and solutions, it can mean a lot of things. But uh, here we're talking about embedded uh, computer boards and, and, and system solutions, which uh, can be plugged into you know, whatever you, you need. Uh, for your systems, so um, w yeah, it could be computer on on module, it could be si uh, system on module. Yeah, it could be anything that you know, has a a might be a processor, a controller, and some memory, some interface, uh, comms, yeah, that kind of stuff. All right. Are there any uh, prevailing trends in boards and solutions these days that we're going to be learning about? Um, oh, definitely. So I think um, there is definitely a big trend. I mean, you all you see a lot. Oh, just coming back, you know, when we did uh, earlier this year, CES and, and Las Vegas, and right. the the keynote there, they were talking about connected intelligence in everything, and um, enabling that connected intelligence is you know what everybody's trying to do, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in um, uh, industrial or you know, you know um, autonomous vehicles or smart cities. How do you do that uh, quickly and how do you deploy it um, effectively? Uh, so one of the things I think we're seeing a lot more of is, you know, just people 
embeddings, yeah, some systems, and then providing those solutions as a board. And you have big companies out there like AD-Link Technology and Advantech, um, plenty, plenty of others. Uh, I just I'm name, naming a couple of them who are speaking at the conference. But yes, yes, we'll be um, talking to them. They are all producing these solutions can be quickly deployed so that somebody can implement a smart city or a uh, industrial automation plant or something like that. Excellent. Uh, so uh, the people who the attendees, people who sign up to to visit the show. Um, what are they likely to learn? Tell us a little bit about uh, who's speaking and what they'll be speaking about. Okay, good. So, um, as I said, you know, the embedded computer boards and modules provide the ready assembled uh, building blocks. So, um, the conference itself is going to be covering three key areas, three tracks we have industrial automation, smart cities, and edge computing. And we picked those because they really sort of um, encapsulate everything, you know, whether you're going into the, the healthcare systems or the smart cities or um, manufacturing or autonomous driving. Those are all you know, going to be key, key areas. So um, who, uh, what we all have is uh, on the first day, uh, that's October the 13th, and you're going to ask me later, I'm sure, but I'll just, on the first day of October the 13th, um, We'll start with the industrial automation and um, Neil Stroud of um, ARM is going to be doing the opening keynote there and uh, he'll be talking about accelerating innovation in industrial automation and then we'll have a a number of speakers, uh, keynote speakers and then technical presentations in that area. On the uh, second session, which is on smart cities, which starts the next day on October the 14th, then yeah, we'll be starting with um, the uh, EMEA Business Development Director of Smart Cities for NVIDIA. And he's going to be doing the opening keynote on how AI can make smart cities smarter. And then uh, later in the day, uh, we'll have our um, edge computing uh, session. And uh, that's a really interesting one because um, Jim Liu, uh, the uh, CEO, founder and CEO of AD-Link Technology um, in Taiwan, he's going to be talking about um, industri- insights into edge autonomy and the future of edge computing. So it's really exciting in terms of the keynotes, but also in terms of the presentations and the technical presentations we'll be having over those two days. So I think the only thing left to talk about is how people can attend the conference. I assume it's virtual. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we were uh, looking to see and do something, but it's going to be virtual. And it's on October the 13th and 14th. Um, it, it is starting at 2.30 p.m. Uh, Paris time, that's Central European time, on uh, October the 13th, but there is an exhibition as well associated with it. Uh, so that starts earlier and you can go in and as, as you've done with lots of uh, virtual exhibitions and conferences, you can go and chat to the um, exhibitors and, and, and mm-hmm. yeah, speakers, and then we'll be having some panel sessions as well. So October the 13th and 14th, starting in the afternoon uh, in, the, in Europe, which means we can catch the people in Asia at the end and also in the US uh, from the morning. So that way we're trying to get everybody. Uh, it's a bit hard, you know, having a global online conference. And then it continues the next day, uh, again, starting in the afternoon. Uh, but then this will go on into the evening uh, European time. 
For those of you who would like to attend the Boards and Solutions Conference, virtually of course, the web address is the conference name completely spelled out and separated by dashes. So it's www.boards-and-solutions.com. The and in the URL is spelled out. We've also got a handy link on the webpage for this episode of the weekly briefing. The dates again are October 13th and 14th, and the presentations will be available to stream afterward. There are only so many things you can do with some products. Consider coffee mugs or garden rakes or windshield wipers. Those are things that are what they are. In the semiconductor industry, however, there is almost always a better way to do just about everything. It really is a situation where you either innovate or you fold. There are plenty of types of semiconductors that have seen tremendous innovation. CPUs, power ICs, RF chips, and the topic of our next segment, memory ICs. There's been a quite a lot of innovation in the memory segment of the market, but oddly, in a business where true innovation all but guarantees success, emerging memories haven't quite caught on much yet. EE Times decided to take a closer look at the memory market in one of our special projects. That's a package of stories focusing on multiple aspects of a single issue. Gary Hilson is the resident memory maven, writing for EE Times. He put together our memory special project, so we decided to ask him on to give us an overview of what's going on in the memory biz. Gary, it seems to me that most of the industry has been making do with uh, two or three main kinds of memory for quite a long time, mostly DRAM, SRAM, Flash. Um, In past few years, it seems that there's been this explosion of innovation in memory. Um, Can you explain what's going on? Well, we've had emerging memories for some time. And they've been emerging for a long time, <laughs> in some cases, decades. And those are the RERAMs, the MRAMs, the FRAMs, and the PC RAMs. So they're, they've been looking for a place and, in some cases, promising to displace Flash and DRAM. The challenge is, is that DRAM and Flash keep moving forward. So the goalposts mm. are changing. So whether it's realistic for these memories to ever catch up and ultimately they all have really great characteristics in terms of some, some of them are performance uh, characteristics. Mm -hmm. Others are retention, uh, durability, uh, reliability, uh, but they're not cost effective to manufacture at scale. And that's the real challenge. Mm. And even if we talk about 3D NAND, there was a lot of discussion. There was this gray area or this transition period where the question was, will it be as cost effective as 2D planar NAND? And if it wasn't, well, it's, Mm. it's not really going to take off. Otherwise, you might as well stick with the stuff that works and that's cost effective. The exception to a lot of these new memories is that uh, 3D crosspoint in the form of 
Intel's Optane looks to have finally kind of got over that hump that 3D NAND had to. It looks like Intel has got the recipe, for lack of a better word, on manufacturing. But even mm -hmm. Intel doesn't seem to be marketing uh, Optane as a full replacement for DRAM or for flash SSDs. It's more about a hierarchy of memory and storage and finding an appropriate use case where it makes sense because you don't want to load up on DRAM or you need something more than a flash SSD. And then if you look at the other emerging memories, they're doing well at low densities for embedded applications, but there's a lot of debate about whether they can get over the hurdle to become viable as discrete higher densities. And some of them are already around. FRAM's in a lot of different little applications. There's a nice solid business for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the marketing people would say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna be better than DRAM. We're gonna be better in Flash. And it's not really possible, probably from an engineering perspective. But however, um, like Optane, which could have a healthy market, even if it doesn't replace DRAM or Flash, all these memories could still have a healthy market, niche markets. And that is being driven. You asked where the explosion of interest, that's all the use cases that are coming up for automotive and 5G and they are they might be applicable. But at the same time, a lot of memory that people have been predicting would go away, like NOR Flash, is still viable for these in low densities. And it and ultimately I think the most biggest challenge for all these new technologies is they gotta be qualified and vetted. And industries like automotive uh, need qualified memory. They need to stick with what works and Norflash and, and a lot of these others, and even SRAM, which is kind of fading, but people know it works and they can count on it. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Uh, there's uh, obviously some niches where, where specialty uh, memories can um, can thrive, as you mentioned. Um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, uh, military, where the numbers will never be huge. But then you mentioned some of the new applications are things like automotive, um, where the numbers potentially could be huge if if the memory becomes appropriate. Um, you know, for the for that for that particular application. Um, what's with, with some of these newer applications with potential for, for much larger unit volume, is it possible that, um, some of these specialty memory manufacturers are hanging on hoping for, um, these, what tend to be slow developing, but potentially huge applications to, to actually become more commercial? I think there is something to that. Uh, MRAM, for example, is being used in embedded applications. It's been tested in recent years to be automotive grade in that it can handle mm -hmm. the extreme temperature variations, for example, that automotive requires. You got cold and you've got hot uh, and, and, it, and the endurance for the, the, the long periods that automotive wants because they're going to put something in a vehicle and it's got to last as long as the vehicle. So I think there is that 
that opportunity that awaits that they're holding out for and maybe it'll take off but on the flip side of that there's a lot of again there's these technologies that have already proven themselves like and i and norflash often comes to mind because it's often the target of these emerging memory companies say norflash <laughs> yeah. isn't going to scale anymore and they say that about dram but they've been saying that for years so i think it's about the performance has to be there and in many cases it is and it doesn't need to be high density which is fine but as well it has to be really cost effective to manufacture in large volumes and they have to work out those processes and also it has to be that vetting has to happen so whether it's automotive or medical or industrial applications that required ruggedness and dependability um, there's a lot of factors and there is as much as emerging memories and innovation is fun. There's also a sense of we stick with what works. We know it works and, and, yeah. and these things need that reliability. So we're going to stick with that. And there is still innovation going on with these older technologies. What used to be called legacy memories are not really legacy memories anymore. There are still, mm. there are still applications being designed around DDR3. There are still applications being built around NorFlash uh, because those applications do not need the latest and greatest memory. They do not need DDR5. Right. They can do DDR3 or DDR4, and it's, it's enough for a piece of medical diagnostic equipment in a hospital. Excellent. So uh, you are the editor pulling together a special project for EE Times in the Aspen Core stable. Um, we're going to be publishing, we've already published a couple of those articles. We'll be publishing the rest of them soon. Uh, could you give us uh, just a taste of what the overall package is? What, uh, what uh, type of stories we can, we can expect to read? Well, there is some coverage of emerging memories talking about some of the things we've just spoken about in terms of what is an emerging memory and at what point do we decide that it's not emerging anymore and maybe it's just a small memory with a nice healthy market. Uh, we are also talking about those legacy memories, the, the ones that were thought to be running out of steam, uh, running out of runway, but are still being used and who is marketing those, who's selling those, because there is a focus by a lot of the larger vendors on the latest and greatest. They're looking at DDR5, they're looking at high bandwidth memory and improving 3D NAND flash to do things like hyperscale data centers and machine learning and AI. And in the meantime, there is an, a market for other companies we're building products and systems and they don't want that latest and greatest. So they need to be served uh, by companies who will keep supporting them for, for years to come and not try to drag them along too fast. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's also about uh, where the demand is. Uh, it's emerging applications, uh, IOT and edge computing. Uh, edge computing is something that started out as, well, we'll just need very small memory and now it's looking like we'll need slightly larger memories because it's going to be need, going to be smarter at the edge than we thought and not send everything right. back to a central cloud. 
and we also see um, opportunities uh, in security and in 5G because 5G equipment, it's not so much the smartphones that need more memory because they've been adding more memory regardless of the networking. What's happening is, is all that infrastructure that's carrying the data needs more memory and different kinds of memory. And that 5G ties into that autonomous driving. Uh, that 5G network is going to help support autonomous driving. So everything is kind of a tapestry. It sounds maybe a little <laughs> cheesy, uh, but everything's kind of interlinked. These legacy memories are playing a role in 5G, which in turn support autonomous vehicles. And sometimes emerging memories might play a role in the edge, but sometimes it might be something that's been around for a while. So there's a lot of overlap. And, and we also have all these remote workers now because of the time we live in. So it, we may see a trend towards uh, more memory being used up by the PC market again. Uh, it used to be the leader in, in memory adoption, but the server world and the data center world and now the hyperscale cloud world, they gobble up more of the memory first. But we, we have a lot of remote workers at home who have to be in front of a computer and they want to have a good user experience. So we might see more horsepower uh, going into those desktop computers again. That was EE Times contributing editor Gary Hilson. Gary mentioned Intel's Optane. Intel's Christy Mann runs that operation, and she was a guest on a previous weekly briefing podcast that aired in June. If you'd like to listen to that, the link is on this podcast episode's webpage, which you can find at eetimes.com podcasts. The articles in the Aspen Core Special Project on memory are available online at eetimes.com. While you're checking it out, you might want to dive into some of our previous special projects, especially the ones on technology for tackling the COVID-19 pandemic, on the new technology cold war between the U.S. and China, and the one on how gallium nitride and silicon carbide are being used to improve power electronics. Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of watershed events in technology history, along with as many digressions as I can find. Today, we are going to set our Wayback Machine to September 23rd, 1846. That was the day Johann Gottfried Gala received a letter from Urbain Jean-Joseph Le Verrier and I know I've just made vast swaths of Europe cringe right there with my pronunciations, so don't even bother to write in. I know. Anyway, the German guy got a letter from the French guy in which the French guy basically said, hey, I've been looking at Uranus, or maybe that's Uranus, whatever. And I'm guessing that's completely not funny in either French or German. Anyway, the French guy says, Hey, I've been looking at Uranus, and it's doing this wobbly thing as it orbits. And I think that means there's another planet we previously knew nothing about that's causing the wobble, and here are the coordinates where I think you should look for it. Observers had long known Uranus was there, but it wasn't until 1781 that William Herschel determined that it was actually a planet. 
Well, to be precise, Herschel originally thought it was a comet, and it took a couple of years before scientists finally agreed it was a planet. But 1781, new planet, Uranus, which remained an object of fascination because it was the first planet discovered since ancient times. Ceres was discovered in 1801, by the way, and was considered to be the eighth planet uh, before being demoted to an asteroid half a century later. Observatories around the world were tracking celestial objects in the 1700s and creating charts predicting their movements, but no one had compiled a single source of accurate observations, and Le Verrier was determined to be the first. In 1846, as he was working, he detected that perturbation, I love that word, perturbation, in the orbit of Uranus. He did the math, and he figured out that a likely cause of the wobble in the planet's orbit was the gravitational pull from another planet. Le Verrier was associated with the Paris Observatory. But the Berlin Observatory had just completed a new facility in 1835, and it was equipped with one of the finest refractor lenses in existence. It was one of the last lenses built by Joseph Fraunhofer. Yeah, that Fraunhofer, the guy whom the Fraunhofer Institute is named. Don't give me a hard time about the pronunciation. Fraunhofer had invented a machine that polished lenses far more accurately than what was then the current way of grinding lenses. He also built a furnace that produced glass for refraction lenses that had far, far fewer defects than anyone else could produce. Fraunhofer died young, like many other glassmakers in the 1800s, from breathing in heavy metals used in the glassmaking process and he took his lens-making secrets to the grave with him, which is why it's kind of a big deal that the Berlin Observatory had one of his last and best lenses. And that's why Le Verrier, even though he worked at the Paris Observatory, sent his calculations off to Gala at the Berlin Observatory. The Berlin Observatory was run by Johann Franz Enke, who at the time, and even now, is renowned for his work identifying comets. Apparently, he was also a bit of a crank and only grudgingly gave Gala permission to go looking for Le Verrier's mystery object. Gala found it very close to where Le Verrier had predicted it would be that very night. Gala gave all the credit to Le Verrier, who decided to name the new planet Neptune. It was the first time anyone had found a planet using only math. And that's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending September 25th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with the links to the stories we mentioned, along with other multimedia. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. So one last question. I was reading the, the uh, article from Black Enterprise, and I learned a new word.
blurred. <laughs> Do people really use that? Not really. <laughs> okay. 